Good. Well, uh, we're going to be looking into uh, God's Word in the Bible um, in Genesis chapter 2. If you're following in one of the Bibles that might be kind of roughly within arm's reach of you, it's on page 4. <laughs> so it's not hard to find uh, Genesis. It's one good thing about that, amongst many other things. And uh, we're in our third week now of, a, oh, I suppose about 10, 11, 12 weeks, uh, looking into the first few chapters of the Bible. And uh, already we've seen that uh, in these early pages, and indeed all the way through, but particularly in these early pages, there are some, some really big issues to be dealt with, some really uh, big questions. Uh, we meet God, in a sense, for, for the first time, perhaps, in these pages. Certainly, it's the first, uh, at the very beginning, of, of his uh, uh, revealing of himself, his uh, unfolding of, of who he is. And we begin to see uh, what he's like. We begin to see how he's at work and involved with the human race and, and why on earth he should uh, want to do that. And uh, since we're all human beings, at least I think we are, um, yeah, I think we are, we're all human beings, you know, we kind of find ourselves um, kind of reading a story, as Andy Atkins said last week, that, that we ourselves are part of. There's all these kind of connections that, that, that have hit our lives, particularly uh, coming out of the way uh, the whole account is written, actually. It, we, there are ways that, that it just seems to, to touch us. I don't know whether you're finding that already. Uh, watch out for it uh, as we go along. So let's have a look at chapter 2 uh, and, and verse 4. We're going to read from verse 4 to 17 uh, to start with. Uh, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the ground, and, uh, from the earth, and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon or Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river, river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now I want just for the first part to, to, to quite quickly skim across these early uh, verses because uh, we're going to focus much more on, on the second half. But... but Already, you know, if you're observant, you, can, you will have noticed, compared with uh, Genesis chapter 1, that we're into another account of the way in which human beings are made to relate to God. 
Last week, we saw uh, one account, and we saw then of how, how the, the writer, has, as the story unfolds, says that this is how human beings are made in God's image, and we were thinking about that. That's why uh, the question was asked. And we thought then that um, uh, there is this, this element of our, our experience as human beings that, that means that we're more than animals. We, we, although you might not believe it, actually, it's, it's harder to live just like an animal than it might appear, perhaps if you're you know, in certain places at certain times. On the whole, as human beings, being an animal doesn't quite fit it because there's more to us than that. And, and the Bible uh, talks about us being made in God's image and that we won't go all over that. Do listen to it online if you want to hear what Andy had to say. We're above the animals, but we're less than God's. And these elements in our makeup, these bits of our human experience, that, you know, our ability to worship, our conscience, our, our self-consciousness, uh, all kinds of stuff, uh, are a reflection of God. And most of all, we're, we're made with this ability, with this capacity to live in relation to him. And this next section uh, uh, that we've been looking at, I've just read, focuses really down on humanity itself in much more kind of detail, if you like. And you see, as we'll read it through, it's primarily about our relationships, our relationship with God, our relationships with each other, as we shall see in a moment or two, and our relationship to the environment that we're in. Now, as I say, we're going to spend most of our time on our relationships with each other in a moment or two. But I just want before then, as we get going, to to just point out one or two things from this first half. One thing that really stands out, especially if if you you read the the original and you know the thing. I don't read Hebrew, but this is what people who know it very well are are able to report back on. is, Is the name for God here, the Lord God, it says. He's, he appears, God appears now. For, for Up until now, it's been God did this, God did that, God said that. But here is the Lord God. The Lord God. Now, what's that about? It means something. We've already met the God who speaks and says, let there be light and all that kind of stuff. We've met, we've met him, but there's this other name, the Lord in capital letters. And if you know your Old Testament and stuff, you all know that when we see that word in the Bible, L-O-R-D in capital letters, it's a reference to, 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 to God's special name, Yahweh. The name that he, he gave to the people of Israel. A name he uses much later, in, well a bit later in the Bible, in Exodus, when he really gets involved relating to this community and getting to know them and, and doing things and, and moving out in, in history. And, uh, and he's revealed himself in those times by this name, the Lord, that is L-O-R-D in capital letters in our Bible. He's the God who makes promises. He's the God who commits himself in love to his people. So in this section, and actually only in this little section, uh, we are told that he's the Lord God. He's the God of creation that we've been uh, singing about, who's done these amazing things, but he is also the God of relating to people, the God of love and an invitation into a relationship with him as exemplified in the story through the Old Testament of his relationship with the people uh, uh, that were the Jews. And in this section, we see this God, this Lord creator, giving. 
Again, no time for details here, but look at what he gives. He gives life in verse 7. He gives life to the man, life to Adam as he's uh, known as. I'm not sure why, but this isn't working. I should have a, a point coming up here. He gives life, verse 7. He shapes this man out of dust, like the potter does the clay, as Peter says. And it's an incredibly tender image. But he also uh, breathes life into him. And it's like, you know, there's this image of the potter kind of making stuff. And then, and then he, kind of, he kind of kisses. Yeah, the, the amazing picture of, of, of the living God kind of just gently breathing life into this creature. It's amazing. What does that tell you about God? He not only that, he gives this man, uh, this, this human being, a place to live, a home. Verses 8 to 14. The best place imaginable. It's called Eden. Eden means delightful. It's a word that's used in, in different ways in the Old Testament. Not just for a place, but for just delight and just pleasure. And it kind of becomes the idea of paradise. And when we get, get pictures of, of being in God's presence in the future, it, there are connections with this, this account of, uh, of the, the, the beginnings. It's a wonderful place. He gives him a home. He gives him a job to do in verse 15, to work the garden and to keep it. And, we see, and we'll see in a moment that God gets involved with him in that task, in, in partnership. It's amazing. He speaks to him. He gives him a purpose, gives him a job to do. And he gives him freedom to choose. That's this bit in verses 16 to 17. In the middle of this garden, there are these two trees, the tree of life. Now, again, elsewhere in the Bible, we see that as a, as a picture. We see it in the book of Revelation. We see it in other parts of the Bible of life from God, life in God's presence. And somehow the, the writer is saying at that point, the, the, the human beings, they had, they had access to the life of God's presence. There it was. I don't think it necessarily actually means that there was a tree that gave you life if you ate the fruit. I don't know. You may have to think about that for yourself. But, but certainly elsewhere in the Bible, there is this, this picture language of God's life. But there's also the opportunity to freely obey God or not. There's this other tree, the knowledge of good and evil. What's that? Well, again, you need to think that through. But it certainly seems to be presenting this human being or these human beings with the possibility of either trusting God to decide what's right and what's wrong for them or to disobey God and decide for themselves. They're given that choice to obey God or to disobey him, to live their own way or to live under his loving rule. There's a warning. They're told not to do that. If they do, something terrible will happen. But he's able to choose, or they are able to choose for themselves. Be much more about this next week when we move on to the next part. So we see God loving man, giving him so much, wanting him to grow under his love and his leadership, eventually going out into the world to rule it. 
This is another way we saw last week what Andy called the cultural mandate when, mandate, when, when God gives the human beings the, the right to go out and rule the earth and subdue it and be fruitful. This is another way of kind of pointing to the same kind of responsibility that human beings have. Amazing. Well, let's pause a bit for a moment or two and think about the way we're told about this because it's... Um, it is a story. That doesn't mean that it isn't true, by the way, but it is presented as a story. There is a very clear structure to all of this. There are symbols, like this tree of life, which appears as a symbol elsewhere in the Bible. Later, we have a talking snake, as we shall see next week. And, and again, uh, that, that is an image is used of the enemy of, 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 well, of God and the, the, uh, as being this, this spiritual being who's called the old serpent in, in, in Revelation. We've already been told about the creation of humans from one angle, and this is another one. So we've got to kind of fit that together. If, if we're trying to read kind of like the newspaper or watching a video of what happened, you know, we're not in that kind of world. We're in the world of, of, of meaning through these, this, this account that he's giving in a story form. It's very sparsely told. The details are all pointing to something on a very big scale, and there are other things that are just not there. So how does this all fit with science then? Well, I, I'm not going to go into all the details, but I just do want to make a couple of points. The main thing is that science does not necessarily threaten Genesis. There's loads of resources that will help you on this. So that's why I'm not going to go into it, in, in, including um, uh, the big question time, I hope, in next a few weeks' time and then in July. I hope perhaps in July we'll think about some of these Genesis issues. Uh, there's books. I found these books are really helpful. This one's by somebody called John Collins, called Did Adam and Eve Really Exist? Who They Were and Why It Matters. That's a really interesting book. goes into lots of information, lots of ideas about the structure of the book and some of the science and all of that. Here's another one called All the, In the Beginning, the opening chapters of Genesis. And, you know, there are millions of, uh, loads of really helpful books that you can look at. There are many scientists who believe the Bible. Um, there's a website called bethinking.org which uh, hasn't appeared there, but uh, will appear in a minute. Oh, I'll go on. There it is. You go on that. That's just the Science and Christianity page. There's, there's masses and masses of stuff you can get on there all about these issues, okay? And so that's why I'm not going to talk about them in detail. See, God's word could have come in statements at this point, like Paul writes the book of Romans. You know, Paul writes the book of Romans, and he writes it in, in certain statements about how God, uh, how we are with God and so on. And, and the writer could have said, God made a great world. We're made for God. We're made for each other. We're in his world. It's all gone wrong. This is why we rebelled against God and we've got banished as a result. Could have said it like that. But he didn't. Because when Genesis was written, people explained their beliefs in these kind of epic stories. So he gives us his own epic. He takes the truth he knew as God had given it to him and put it into a form that made sense against that background. That's why when people sometimes attack Genesis, they say, yeah, but you know, the, 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 there were all these Sumerian stuff and there's all kinds of stories about how the world was formed. Yes, there were. 
And that doesn't mean Genesis isn't right. It means that the writer is presenting his truth or God's truth in a form that was common around that time. That's important for us to get hold of. It doesn't mean that he's not writing out of something that happened in real time. It doesn't mean that it didn't happen. That this isn't based on some kind of actual event. It, for example, what's that? A man with a screwdriver goes by a church. What's that about? Some of you will know. On Tuesday, a man with a screwdriver was over the road shouting and ranting, and he ended up uh, throwing a screwdriver actually at the church building, which wasn't very nice for the toddler group at the time. Okay? Now, I could tell you the story about that. I could tell you it in a number of ways. I could begin by talking about how, you know, there are, there are many in this area people who are, are mentally disturbed and there's a great need and, and, and how we need to be compassionate. I'll tell you something about the makeup of our area. I could actually tell you about how just about 10 days ago uh, when we were in the prayer time, we were praying and some of us went out and, 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 and God spoke very clearly through, uh, through an incident about that kind of oppression that people are facing uh, in confusion and darkness and hostility and stuff, and that we prayed about. I could, t- could spend hours, or, or not hours, but a long time, telling you all about that prayer meeting and about our sense of how God was speaking to us about that kind of issue in the house of prayer as we pray for this community every day. I could tell you a lot about that. I could tell you about the makeup of, of Portswood. I could tell you about mental health provision in the area. I could tell you many things. Angela, who was there at the back row... Uh, if you ask her to give you the statement, she did, I don't know if you made a statement to the police, or if you do make a statement to the police, that'll be different. If I was to take my story and write it up as, a, say, a blog, and, or, or even a tweet, a tweet would be a bit hard, but say a blog of 200 words, it would, it would be different again. It would be a bit more sparse, certain things would be in it. Certain things wouldn't. The point is, though, it was all based on something that really actually happened. And I think we're we're in something like that in the book of Genesis. But enough of that, enough of science. I don't know where the revolution in. Let's read verses 18 to 25. And let's talk about sex. That should wake you all up. (laughs) Sorry, revolution. I don't just mean you. I mean all of us. (laughs) Verse 18. The Lord God said... It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. But for Adam, the man, because that's... Hebrew is Adam, man. No suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This now, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. All through Genesis 1, 
one of those refrains that puts the structure into it is God saw that it was good, isn't it? It was good, it was good, it was good. All through the account. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. Something is not good. The man is alone. And the Lord talks of a helper suitable for him. This has the idea of someone alongside him. Someone who is other to him, but yet with him. Someone in the, the Hebrew is the idea of being opposite against. Not against in the sense of, you know, against, but in the sense of kind of alongside. It doesn't mean that that person is inferior. The word carries no, idea, no sense of inferiority. Actually, the word is often used, the helper word is used of the way God is the helper of his people in the Old Testament. And no one thinks that because God helps his people in the Old Testament, he's inferior to his people, do they? Same word. And then there's a delay. It's very dramatic. You think, oh, right, okay, but, but then there's a gap, isn't there? Verse 19, we, 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 we have to wait a bit. The man gets on with the job he's been given. He's been told to rule the, uh, look after the park, rule the animals. So what does he do? He classifies them. Look how God is involved with this. It's a lovely kind of uh, picture. It says God brings, he brought them to the man. And he, he brings them to see what the man would name them. And whatever the man named them, that's what it was. What a kind of picture of partnership and, and tenderness and, and fellowship here. The man shows his authority over them by naming them, by ordering them, as it were. But they come and they go, and he's still on his own. See, the, that's the drama of the story, you know. Oh, Oh dear, what's going to happen next? So he's put to sleep. A deep sleep. That word is often used for a sleep from God. So more than, a, uh, my son does anesthetics, but better than a, an, what the anesthetists do, a deep sleep from God. Actually, the, the word is used, you know, when Abraham has that vision of God and meets God and he's put in a dream, he's in a deep sleep. It's the same kind of idea. Something supernatural is happening, and this other creature is formed from him, who belongs with him, the other half of him. And Adam wakes up and sees this woman, and he bursts into poetry. <laughs> How's that then? First bit of poetry in, in the Bible, I think. Yes, no, it's not the first bit, it's the, the bit about God creating man in his own image. But again, interesting. It, uh, there's a connection there, isn't it? This idea of male and female is in poetry. Now here's the man speaking poetry. He's delighted. At last, he says in the original. This is now, has the idea of, at last. <laughs> Here is bone of my bones and, and flesh of my flesh. She's like me, but she's better. <laughs> she's Isha, because she's come from Ish. That's the woman, that's what the Hebrew is. Now, this isn't like the naming of the animals. That does happen to, with Adam names Eve, but that's after the fall in Genesis chapter 3. I think, it's a, and it's a slightly different phrase as well. So he's not naming her like he named the animals. He's actually just bursting, and woo, you know, this is, she's come from me. So she's woman, Isha, you know, that's what she is. 
It's describing what she is. And there's this equality, there's mutuality. She's the other half of me, he says. I'm not alone anymore. They're made for each other. Neither is complete without the other. And he's kind of thinking, hey, I've got my rib back, but it's got her on it, okay? (laughs) And she's kind of thinking, maybe I'm speculating, I'm here because I've got some of him in me. There's this kind of interdependence. Then the narrator speaks. And that's why, says the narrator, men and women need to be in relationship with each other. We're made that way. Now, what does that have to say for us for today? There's some big issues here. It says a great deal. But here's a few starters as we're we're kind of on the home straight. I'm uh, referencing a, a guy called David Atkinson who wrote an excellent commentary on Genesis, and I think these are very helpful. Genesis tells us a number of things. First of all, Genesis tells us we're made in God's image. So uh, particularly as we approach this area of sexuality and relationships and all of that, we have to behave towards each other accordingly. We must treat one another as creatures made in God's image. So there's no place, if we treat one another as made in God's image, there's no place for fear of one another in that sense or for phobias about people, or for hatred of people, or rejection of people, or discrimination against people. Whoever they are, and no matter what we might think about their lifestyle and their behavior, they are still, we are all made in God's image and demand uh, to be treated accordingly. Genesis tells us that. Genesis tells us something else as well. It tells us that we're bodily people. The body is not some bad bit that, you know, is just where, you know, the soul is, the, the, you know, the, the kind of soul or sp- spirit or whatever you call it sits inside it and the sooner it leaves the better. That was Greek ideas. That's not the Bible's idea at all. There are two basic models in the human race, male and female, and that goes deep into our identity as we were created is what Genesis is telling us. And, and I think we need to affirm that. Uh, and kind of say, yeah, vive la différence, as they may say in France or Belgium. Let's affirm that, and, and let's not pretend that we're all the same, because we're not. Both models equally reflect the image of God in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis tells us, thirdly, that we're made for relationships, that it's not good to be alone, that the image of God is expressed in community. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean we, we therefore all have to be sexually active, to be human in Genesis terms? Because it's not good for us to be alone and so on. No, can't do. Jesus wasn't sexually active and he was in the image of God like nobody else. But we do need to work out ways that friendships and community are real. Real for all of us, whatever our gender, whatever our orientation. And that real friendships, real love, real community, real belonging with other people can exist without sex. The New Testament talks of the Christian community as a family. And in in a healthy family, there's love and respect and and interaction and belonging. When sex gets involved, then it's, it, well, it's, a, it, it's terrible, it's bad, it's an offense, and, and so on and so forth. It is possible for us to live in relation with other people 
without sex. Genesis tells us that sexuality is part of our makeup. We are sexual beings. But, but again, our culture says that means we, the only way to express that is by having sex. Well, is it? Can't it be expressed in many other positive, non-erotic ways? Like working together as men and women? Enjoying the differences, the different approaches to tasks, the different humor, the different kind of way we're wired. Isn't that possible? That, that as sexual beings, we can kind of appreciate one another in that sense? There may be other ways. You might want to talk about that in your house group this week. Some interesting conversations in the house groups this week. But Genesis also, like the rest of the Bible, celebrates sex. Look at the Song of Solomon. It's the whole book is basically a great celebration of, 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 of sex between two lovers, a couple. One man and one woman. See, the Bible always celebrates sex in a context as here. One man, one woman in a committed, loving, covenantal relationship. Sex is a sign of something else. It's spiritual. It's not just a pleasurable experience, though it is that. So verse 24 talks about marriage, something God gives for people. Jesus quotes verse 24. Jesus said that this is what God wants for people. It's how he made us. And there are these three elements in it. I won't go into it because my time is gone. But there's the leaving, there's the being united, and there is the one flesh. Three aspects of a, a loving, committed, covenantal relationship. Now, where does that leave us then? If this is what God intended for people... I'm going to have to say, but how can the marriage of two people of the same sex fit with what is said here in Genesis 2? It just doesn't seem to, does it? What are we going to do? Well, we can talk about this again. We can talk about it at the big questions. Talk about it afterwards if you want to, to talk it through. This is a starting point for me, but it seems clear. But... The Bible doesn't stop there. Look, there's verse 25. The man and his wife were both now naked and they felt no shame. Huh, why is that there? Why is that a significant comment as we read it? Well, it's significant because as readers, we know that it's not always like that, is it? For us. And why isn't it always, perhaps hardly ever, like that for us? Because sexuality is under a bit of a shadow, like a lot of life as we know it. Something's gone wrong. And whilst we can see bits of Genesis 2 in our experience, there's other stuff in there too. Next time we'll find out where that's come from. But we're no longer in Eden, are we? We're beyond Genesis 2. So it's more complex now. Sexual attraction, sexuality can be flawed. It can be obsessive. It can be demanding. It can be less than, or, or more, less, yeah, I was going to say less than what God designed. Same-sex attraction can be an issue. Or we may struggle with all kinds of things. Insecurity. 
know, the kind of insecurity sometimes as, as married couples that find single people threatening or troublesome. There can be possessiveness. There can be jealousy. There can be fear. There can be rejecting other people. There can be loathing ourselves or others. There's, you know, I don't need me, don't need me to go on, you know, cataloging. But there are lots and lots of areas where our sexuality is kind of flawed and under the shadow. So here's the question as I close. How do we live beyond Eden? That's the question, isn't it? I've just got four starting points, and then I really will be finished, and they're quick. Let's not give up on what God wants for us. Let's celebrate the good. Where we, get, you know, where we can get back to Genesis 2, let's get there, and let's enjoy it, and let's embrace what it, what it is to be human beings made in God's image. And let's live that out. Let's, let's also realize that we can change. Let's realize that there's a way back home again. Let's realize that God's way is good for our world because he's a loving creator. But I don't think we can demand it of our world, actually. That's my personal opinion. That doesn't mean we won't use, we will use whatever processes we want to engage in to, to help make the case for, for what God says. But I don't think we as Christians can demand that our world necessarily goes the way we want it to, other than be in our rights as citizens in the democratic process. So don't give up on God's intention for us. Jesus is someone who lived for God as a real man, and we follow him. More than that, though, he's described as the lover of his people. His people are described as like a bride for him. So we can know his transforming love, his power. Can you just turn to the book of Ephesians or listen to it? It's on page 1176. This is where the New Testament quotes these verses from Genesis. In Ephesians 5 verse 25, it's a verse that tells husbands to love their wives, 1176. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And then verse 31, this reason a man will leave his uh, father and mother and be united to his wife. He's, he's quoting that as the, the background. He said, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. The point is this. Uh, the, the picture is of, of Jesus' love for his people, almost being like the kind of love that erupts out of Adam when God presents uh, the woman, Eve, to Adam. It says here Jesus is going to present his people to himself one day completely put together properly. He says that's, that's his love. That's what he's committed to. So that's uh, something else we need to realize as we live beyond Eden. Jesus is our, 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 our lover and our example. He's our captain. He's our hero. If you're a guy, you find a, Jesus a lover is a bit weird. But Jesus is the captain. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the one we follow. The one who loves us passionately with man love, if you see what I mean. And we need to be a community where real love is found. We need to be a community of welcoming people where love is found, where you can be married and faithful to your spouse, whatever the pressures. Or you can be single, whether you're straight or gay, 
And you can know love, and you can know security, and you can know identity, and you can know fulfillment without being dependent on erotic sex for those things. Actually, to be celibate, like Jesus, because that was how he lived. But lastly, we can't do it on our own. Let's go back to that. The Lord God, the creator, the covenant keeper loves us and gives to us. <clears throat> and uh, Jesus said, if you ask, you will receive. And, and as we come into these difficulties, we think, oh, how on earth are we going to push through this? Ask him to come and help as we struggle on together. Well, they're just starting points. Forgive me if I've you know, set a few things running and... You know, we, we'll be, we can talk about these in life in 3D, life in 3D, or big question time, or for any time. But that let's realize that this God, this Lord God, our Creator, our Covenant Keeper, loves us and gives and wants to be part of our lives for His glory.